Let's pray. Father, I do pray that You would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of Your Holy Word. Um, Build us up in Jesus Christ. Um, Increase our faith as we trust uh, in You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. This week is going to be a gut check of sorts. I trust that uh, we have grown in our understanding of Romans chapter 8. We spent uh, five weeks now uh, looking uh, pretty intently at Romans 8. And so this is the sixth week here in this chapter. So I hope this passage is becoming clearer. And I know that many in the congregation are rejoicing in this passage. Uh, several have told me that they found this, this series from Romans 8 to be very helpful and encouraging uh, to them. And so in Romans 8, we've seen all the wonderful things that God has done for us to help us live for Him. We've also seen what God expects in light of how He helps us. Um, We've seen what He expects of us in light of His help that He gives us. But this week, in Romans 5, verses 26-30, through 30, Paul stops teaching and he starts rooting around in our hearts. And it might not look like it on the face of this passage, but I assure you, that's where uh, this passage takes us very quickly. Um, I imagine it might be a bit uncomfortable at times during this sermon uh, to compare how we think of what God is doing, or rather, um, when we compare about what we think God is doing in our life and what God says He's doing in our life. See, we have a bad habit of using God for what He gives us. We think of Him as our heavenly bellhop or our divine protector. And if you fall into any of these habits, as we all uh, are prone to fall into these habits, uh, this passage is going to expose us for what we are. And it's going to expose um, our self-concern, our self-centeredness. So it might be a bit painful as you reflect on this passage. So that's why I say it's going to be a gut check. Are you going to embrace the teaching of this passage even if it is painful in what it says to you and about you? And I know it's painful because I first preached this passage to myself. Now, how, did, how does Paul get here to verse 26? Well, just taking the, the last several verses we looked at last week, um, one of the things that Paul, one of the questions Paul raises is how should you respond to suffering in your life? And Paul says that we wait eagerly for our, or rather we groan as we wait eagerly for our glorified body. So look at verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
See, we live here in this life with all of its trials, with all of its temptations, with all the pains and disappointments that come with living um, in this life as sinners, living in a uh, sinful, broken world. And we know that something infinitely better um, awaits us. And so we groan and we say, How long, O Lord? And remember how Romans 8 flows out of Romans 7. Oh, what a wretched uh, man. Oh, what a wretched person that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And we groan waiting for that something better that awaits us. And remember how we saw last week that wherever you are in your circumstances, all of your best days are ahead of us if you're in Jesus Christ. Because what awaits us is not only life with God, but resurrected bodies. And so, we groan as we eagerly await our glorified bodies. Verse 23, but we also hope verse 24 for in this hope we were saved now this now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees so we groan but we never mope uh, we are now God's beloved children the holy spirit has made our hearts his home through him we cry abba father God is at work in us. So we groan, but we never ever mope. Because God is at work in us. I was thinking of, um, for an example of hope, and I thought of Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Listen, this is a psalm of David. And what's happening here is David has been chased out of Jerusalem by his own son, by Absalom. Absalom wants to kill him. And so David wrote Psalm 3 as he is fleeing from his own son who hates him. Where is there any room for hope when your son hates you and wants to kill you? Well, listen to David's hope in Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on Your people. In other words, even David in his one of the lowest parts of his life did not mope, but rather he hoped in God. And so, as we groan as we hope, we also wait. And we wait in patience. Verse 25, And if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
And what he's talking about, we wait for our glorified bodies. But the reason why we can wait with patience is because God knows what He's doing. He has very expertly and lovingly designed you and your life for His purposes. He is shepherding you along the quiet waters. He is making you to lie down in His green pastures. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are wearing His yoke and He is directing your life. So, if you live your life in the the here and now with the glorious hope that God is doing something wonderful in your life which will lead then to an eternal existence that is so good that it is beyond your imagination, beyond even your ability to comprehend, what do we do? We groan because we want it. And therefore we hope in God because we know we're going to get it but we have to wait patiently. Listen to, to Paul in Romans 1.18. Uh, I mean, sorry, Romans 8.18, 8, because I really didn't mention this as we uh, move through this passage. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we are going to suffer in this life, but we have something better. In fact, it is so much better that the sufferings are not worth comparing to it. It's so much better that we groan because we have to wait until we get it. But we wait in hope and we wait patiently. So that's the context for Paul's remarks in verses eight. And I'm sorry, in chapter eight, verses twenty-six through twenty um, through thirty, the Holy Spirit we see here in verses 26 and 27 helps us in our prayers. Notice here in verse 26, likewise. Why does he say likewise? Or maybe your translation says, or just as. Well, just as our hope helps us while we wait patiently, likewise, the Holy Spirit does not leave us to wait by ourselves. We're not sitting here on earth all by ourselves, waiting patiently all by ourselves. Rather, the Holy Spirit has made our heart His home. He is with us. He helps us. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we are at our weakest, when we are, at our weakest, we are never helpless. The Holy Spirit is always right there with you. He helps us even in our weakness. Uh, there's many ways that He helps us. In verses 13 through 16, you see many of these ways. Uh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So He helps us put to death the deeds of the body. Verse 14, uh, we who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit helps us in all these ways. But specifically, Paul highlights in verses 26 and 27 that He helps us in our prayers. Paul says we don't know how to pray as we ought. 
Many people over the years have told me they don't know how to pray, and they usually tell me that um, in uh, the context of praying aloud in a group. Um, and um, so I know that that is a difficult thing to, to pray aloud in a group. Um, I'll tell you that I can uh, commiserate with you. I don't know how to pray in a group or by myself because I don't know what I ought to pray. How to, uh, that's what the Scripture says here in verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit helps us in our prayers. You know, even when I do know what I'm to pray for, like for instance on Wednesday night when uh, David Devine says, pray for the meal so we can start eating. I know what I'm to pray for. I'm to thank God for the meal. But even in that moment, I try to recognize that I don't really know what I ought to pray for. In other words, I always want to approach God with His humility saying, God, I need Your help. And I think that's very healthy. Um, and then I also know that even when I know what I'm to pray for, even when I preach, approach God with humility, I still know that many times in my prayers I flub it. I, uh, I don't do a very good job. In fact, I often sin against God even in my prayers. What do I mean by that? I want to read to you just a paragraph from uh, Profiting from the Word by A.W. Pink. Uh, this is one of my favorite books. It's, it's not even my first copy, and, and uh, this copy is worn out as well. But here's something I learned about prayer that I take with me every time that I go to the Lord in prayer. He says, A prayerless Christian is a contradiction in terms. Just as a stillborn child is a dead one, so a professing believer who does not pray is devoid of spiritual life. And then he goes on, he says, the reader will be surprised when the writer declares it is his deepening conviction that probably the Lord's own people sin more in their efforts to pray than in connection with any other thing they engage in. What hypocrisy there is where there should be reality. What presumptuous demandings where there should be submissiveness. What formality where there should be brokenness of heart. How little we really feel the sins we confess. And what little sense of deep need for the mercies we seek. And even where God grants a measure of deliverance from these awful sins. How much coldness of heart how much unbelief, how much self-will and self-pleasing have we to bewail? Those who have no conscience upon these things are strangers to the Spirit of holiness. And that's just in the opening paragraphs of that one chapter. It's a great book. You can actually find it for free online. A.W. Pink, Profiting from the Word. And I believe that you will benefit it, uh, from it greatly. So, if we do sin in our efforts to pray, if we do have an, a weakness so that we don't even know what we ought to pray, it is very good news indeed that the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. You know, I want His help. I don't want to be self-sufficient when I come to Him in prayer. 
I don't want to be the professional who knows how to pray. God, I want God to help me every time I open my mouth in prayer. Well, how does He help? Verses 26 and 27, He knows the will of God. And He intercedes for us. Listen to verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes us, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why does He groan with, uh, with groanings too deep for words? I think the reason He groans is because He knows we groan. He so identifies with us as He's interceding for us. He knows we're groaning, wanting our glorified bodies. And so He groans within us, wanting us to have everything that God wants for us. And so it continues, verse 27, "...and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints." according to the will of God. Wait a minute, the Spirit is interceding for us? I thought Jesus was interceding for me up in heaven. Well, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is up in heaven interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us in our hearts. We need His help. And He eagerly and joyfully and powerfully gives it to us. Even if we don't know what is best, He knows what is best and He helps us. So if you don't know how to pray, well, that's not really a problem. Because the Bible says you don't know how to pray. And so your prayer should be, God, I don't know really how to pray. I don't know what I should pray. And Lord, even if I try, I'm probably going to sin against You in the process. So therefore, help me to pray. You know, and as you're praying, asking God to help you to pray, you know what generally happens? You begin thinking of a neighbor. Lord, as I'm asking you to help me in prayer, I've got this neighbor who needs help too. She's sick. She can't find relief. Help her. Oh, and and God, my boss, He's not really nice to anybody. He needs Jesus. Reveal yourself to Him. And you see what you're doing? You ask God for help, and He helps you. And you're off and running. The essence of prayer is asking God for help. And He is most glorified when we are leaning upon Him, when we are trusting in Him, when we are saying, God, I don't have it together. God, forgive me a sinner. Forgive me for the ways that I sin against You even in prayer. Help me. And that's the context then for verse 28. You all know verse 28 as the Christian's favorite verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. And we usually lift this verse out of its context, but it's within this context of the Spirit giving us His help, of the Spirit interceding within us, the Spirit giving us everything we need. 
When I was a freshman in college, I had come home from college and my younger brother, I guess he was in 11th grade, and we were both home together. My parents hadn't come home from work and we had a swimming pool in our backyard. And we were playing a game where we had a broomstick and we were holding it out and see who could run off and jump off the diving board and jump over the broomstick. And... I was so intent on jumping over the broomstick um, that I went into the pool, didn't even think about anything. Next thing I know, I crashed my head into the bottom of the pool. It was a cement pool. I can remember having this feeling of wanting to pass out and, and not passing out. And I gave myself a concussion. You say, well, that explains a lot. Um, it must not have been that bad because I do know that I beat my little brother. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it was a very serious um, thing that happened. And um, But then uh, later I became a Christian and I heard about Joni Erickson Tata on July 30th, 1967 when she was 17 years old. She dove into Chesapeake Bay and she hit her head on the bottom and she broke her neck. She became a quadriplegic. She lost all feeling and function in her body below the neck. And uh, she was in the ICU and there was, um, I guess everybody with, with neck injuries was uh, in the same ICU. And um, the person in the bed next to her who had a broken neck died right in front of her. And so they moved someone else into the room who had a broken neck. And he died as well. And she says in her book, I knew that I was in a room of dying people because I was going to die, just like Tom and the other man. They both had injuries like mine. I'm going to die too. They're just too afraid to tell me. So the question I ask, it's, was God more good to me than He was to Joni Erickson Tata? I dove into a pool. I very easily could have, maybe even should have, broken my neck. She dove into the Chesapeake Bay, did break her neck, and was a quadriplegic. The Bible teaches that God's goodness, His perfect goodness, was shown equally to Joni and to me. And I raise this question to illustrate that we often approach God's goodness from a self-centered point of view. In other words, when we see in verse 28 where it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, we equate our good with our happiness. Uh, Joni was in the in the hospital, and her boyfriend, who was a Christian, came and visited her, and he said, "Everything works together for good, even your accident." Well, Joni is in the hospital, and she's having her pity party, and she said, "I've already been in this hospital a month, and I have." I haven't seen very much this good. I can't sleep at night because of my nightmares and hallucinations caused by the drugs. I can't move. I'm stuck in this dumb striker frame. What good? Tell me, what is good about that? 
Let me ask you, parents, if you were Joni's parents, would you be able to say everything works together for good, even your accident? The way that we see the good that God is doing for us must not be viewed from the standpoint of our own purpose, but rather for the standpoint from the standpoint of God's purpose for us. We must make God's purpose our chief purpose. And all God's purposes and His good for us, even if it is a tragic, quote-unquote, accident, is always for our best. It is only our self-centeredness that blinds us to this fact. Think with me about Romans 8.28 as we're drawing to a conclusion. Romans 8.28, I'm just drawing out some of the, the, the implications here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. What does this mean? First of all, it means that if God's working all things together for our good, we must have an attitude of gratitude and joy in all circumstances. Secondly, it means that Christians do not need to close our eyes to reality. Truly bad things happen. I so rejoiced in the children last week as I was asking them these theological questions about the hurricane. And they understood God sent the hurricane. Well, if God sent it, is it good? They said no. But can we trust God in the middle of a hurricane? Yes. And so we don't have to close our eyes to reality and say, oh, well, everything's good. Because there are bad things that happen in the world. And we, uh, a biblical world and life view, um, says bad things happen. But it also says God is in control of all things. And all those bad things that happen in the world ultimately work together for our good. God was in control of that hurricane. He not only sent it, He was not only the first cause, but every wind gust, every downed limb, every circumstance of that hurricane. Even uh, I know some of you in the, the congregation have, uh, have family who experienced a little bit of flooding during the, uh, the storm. Everything works together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It also means that worry is a sin. There are no accidents that ever happen. The universe is under a firm control. It's not just under a firm control, but it is under the firm control of your heavenly Father who loves you. It also means both good things and bad things serve God's purpose of pushing forward His good purpose in your life. It means uh, that Romans 8.28 teaches us to look at our troubles as part of God's loving purpose for us. This includes suffering. Suffering is not good, but the results of suffering are intended by God to be the best thing for us. It also means that we cannot ruin God's plans for us. Just like prayer, we can, we can flub it. We can sin in prayer, but the Holy Spirit's helping us. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ is up in heaven interceding for sinners like us. God's purpose, His will always stands. Even in spite of us. So this means, verse 29, that God's good for us, His ultimate good, is making us like Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So those He foreknew, those He loved, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is not just receiving the the, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ um, and uh, and His atonement that He purchased on the cross. What this is talking about is we have been predestined to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in our desires, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes. Um, that's the ultimate goal of your salvation. The ultimate goal of your salvation is not to stay out of hell. The ultimate goal of your salvation is not even to get into heaven. It's not even to allow us to experience God's love. The ultimate goal of our salvation is to make us like Jesus Christ. And so it says here in verse 29 that He might be the firstborn. This is a... Uh, a euphemistic way of saying that He might be the most highly exalted. The firstborn in the family was always the highly exalted one. In other words, Jesus, in making us like Himself through uh, His sanctifying Spirit at work in us, He's bringing glory to Himself. He's being bringing glory to Himself by making friends out of people who are His enemies. He's bringing glory to Himself by making sons of God from children of the devil. He's bringing glory to Himself by making brothers out of rebels. In other words, your salvation is not about you. It will never be about you. Even the God, even I'm sorry, even the good that God is doing for you is ultimately about His glory. So are you willing to say, I will suffer if it will make me more like Jesus and bring Him greater glory? That's the gut check question. Does Romans 8 verse 28 still have the same gleam, still have the same thrill for you when you realize that it's not about you? but it's about Jesus' glory. That's actually what adds the polish to Romans 8.28. He's working all things together um, for my good in order that He might bring glory to Himself. He's using me to bring glory to Himself. Wow! Joni finally realized this. She said, I've been trying to make my world make sense by having things relate to me. I want to see my life have meaning and purpose. But the Bible says our purpose is to glorify God. My life has meaning when I glorify God. And then she said, now that my life was reduced to basic life routines, God was a part of my life because He cared for me. In fact, 
He was my only dependable reality. So, how are you doing in the gut check area? Are you willing to recognize that your life is not about you? Are you willing to recognize that your good, which is really good for you, has a higher purpose than you that is centered and focused in the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we look to You. We praise You because You in Your mercy are using us to bring even more glory to Yourself. Oh Lord, we thank You for the full and complete forgiveness of sins. We thank You that the welcome mat is always uh, rolled out for us in Your presence. That There is therefore now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we are not stopping there. We want You to make us in our thoughts our words, our desires, our attitudes, our actions to be more like Jesus. Make us holy, we pray. Because Jesus, You, our Savior, are holy. We ask in Your name. Amen.